0: The last, <clears throat> the last few weeks we've been clearing the site for the new retreat, kuti. So many people have been commenting on the broken down shack at the front of that site. It was actually the first building of this monastery. Back in the early days, the first year we were here, we had forest but no buildings or road or electricity or anything like that, so we built a small shack to protect ourselves from the sun and the rain just when we were doing the initial clearing of Kuti sites or just visiting the property. In some monks' camp there, we had a patimoka there. Visiting teachers would come and we'd sit there out of the sun or out of the rain. So even though it's just a four post shack with a tin roof, as simple as you can get has great significance, just historically, for the monastery. It's a reminder how forest monasteries all tend to start in much the same way. You have trees, not much else, and you start maybe just camping out. In the old days in a grot, nowadays maybe in a tent, and the monastery starts from there and it points to the value of living in the forest the simplicity the peaceful environment but also the reflection on truth as in the forest because of the simplicity your mind tends not to be quite so distracted as it might be in a urban area, city or a village and you notice things. Maybe this is why the Buddha himself lived in the forest and he encouraged monks to live in the forest. You notice things, you notice the weather and the seasons, you notice the plants, the trees, the wildlife. So as you live in the forest you, you reflect on things, so like there's this comparison of the cycle of life with sangsara. Like every day you see these birds, kookaburras or magpies and many other birds. They're always eating bugs, insects, ants, every day, because that's what they eat. But eventually they'll die. The birds die, either they're attacked by something or they die of disease or old age. So occasionally you come across a dead bird in the forest. And what should be happening? But the ants are eating the dead bird. And that's been going on for thousands of years and it'll probably be going on for many more thousands of years. And that's the nature of samsara. You know, we live in the world, we compete with each other for the things of this world. Most of the time people compete peacefully through the economy and other means. Occasionally it spills over into violent conflict. But we're all competing for the world, our little piece of the world, in one way or another. But we can't really own this world. We have our moment of fame, our moment of wealth, and then eventually we get old and die And when we die we can't take anything with us. And literally our body goes back to the earth, becomes food for creatures, just becomes part part of the elements again. So when you live in the forest you might notice these kind of simple cycles and rhythms of life. It's pointing us to the truth. and That means pointing us back to our own minds, which are able to see the truth and penetrate the truth. When you live in the forest, especially in a simple forest setting, there's a lot of difficulty. You are kutis, they don't have electricity or toilets, you go to the toilet, you use a pit in the on the floor of the forest. <clears throat> you're exposed to the elements. If you're ill, you might be in your kuti, just alone, even if other monks are caring for you. You might spend many hours alone with your own illness, without much distraction. There's even a bit of danger in the forest from... Strong winds can blow trees over or blow branches down. Or at this time of year, it's quite possible to meet a deadly snake, even every day. There's always the possibility of slipping over on a wet, muddy day. Walking through the forest, slip over and hurt yourself. And there's many possibilities in the forest that just remind you of the fragility and temporary nature of life. And the dukkha that's bound up with life. And sometimes there's pain, discomfort, too hot, too cold and so on. This is all food for wisdom. And the Buddha encouraged us to reflect on the nature of this world. Sometimes people say you live in the forest as monks, you know, you're away from the real world. But the real world, what is the real world? In the real world is these eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and the skin, which give us sense contact. Maybe the sense contact, the objects of the senses are slightly different in the city than they are in the forest. But the nature of the world is just the same, arising and ceasing. And if there's no mindfulness and wisdom, then the arising and ceasing of all the sense contact will give rise to kilesa, desire and attraction, or aversion, revulsion, (coughs) (coughs) that's the real world wherever we are it doesn't change the nature of having a human body being sensitive with the senses (coughs) and then the mind how it reacts and copes with sense contact, pleasure, pain, or even neutral feelings sometimes, (coughs) (coughs) giving rise to, if we're unmindful, then craving, attachment, becoming, and ultimately more birth, more saṃsāra. Most of us have come to Buddhism, mean, attracted by reading the Buddha's words, learning meditation, reflecting on the philosophy and the practices of Buddhism. So generally we have some confidence in the w- wisdom of the Buddha, his ability, the enlightened mind to explain the way things are and just explain how suffering arises but also to explain what we have to do to end suffering. So again, trusting in the wisdom of the Buddha, you might reflect back and see the the wisdom of living in the forest, even though it is difficult sometimes or challenging. At the very least, it can keep you out of a lot of trouble. Our senses are still active, but they're less disturbed and distracted than in other parts of the world. So that might give us some space, clarity to observe the process by which suffering arises in a human mind. When you talk to lay people, they always say the same thing, that their lives are so busy, complicated, they find it difficult to reflect on Dhamma and meditate. Whereas we have more time, space, simplicity to do that. And the simplicity or the ascetic nature of our lifestyle, even though at first it can be a challenge because we're used to the lay life. Over time, often it becomes something you appreciate, the value of simplicity, the peace and quiet, solitude of the forest, and even just, some of the asceticism of our lifestyle. We become used to it and then you appreciate how it helps in the training of the mind. And you gain maybe some joy reflecting on how living peacefully, simply in the forest, you know, you're not making a lot of negative karma harming others. And you're learning to train the mind and hopefully letting go of some of your mental defilements and attachments. Just reflecting on that can bring up joy. The joy of living a virtuous life, harmless life. The joy of helping the sangha, helping other monks and maybe even helping other lay people. There are actually many things that can bring us joy in this lifestyle, if we reflect on it. And obviously the deeper joy and happiness of meditation, even though it can be very frustrating, there's the opportunity to develop some internal contentment, happiness of a sort that you can't find anywhere else in this world through external experiences and material things <clears throat> just can't compare. Being forest monks in the tradition of Lumpo Cha, obviously we do have a certain amount of asceticism. It's called the Tudonga tradition, which is something that has been around ever since the time of the Buddha, the Tudonga practices. So it's not nothing new, but in our modern era, we obviously know about Lumpoman and Lumpur Chah, and how they lived, what they taught, their style of practice. It's something that's still within living memory, and we have teachings and writings and recordings to help us. But the Tudonga tradition isn't always um, that comfortable. At first it can be challenging, practicing, say, on a full moon night, new moon night, we often do nesajing. put forth more effort into our sitting and walking, staying up late or staying up all night. It's one of the Tudonga practices, only using the three postures, not lying down or eating food in a bowl, where it gets all mixed up and you lose some of the tastes that you're maybe familiar with or like. Maybe eating one meal a day can be quite a challenge if you're tired, or walking on, wandering, traveling, walking through the forest, through the countryside, or even in the monastery when you're working, or just walking a lot of meditation. <coughs> or practicing the three robe practice where you just use your three main robes, maybe a bathing cloth or something, but don't, or if you're very strict, you just don't have second sabongs or secondary cloth. <coughs> you learn to patch your robes Keep them going. And these are the practices that teachers like Lumpur Cha got used to, but then found very useful for training the mind. We often talk about Tudong more in the sense, the modern sense is more like wandering through the countryside, camping, going to new places, going Bindapat. And that's certainly a very useful practice bringing up the uncertainties of life. Even a monastery can become routine and you can become complacent. But real Tudong is about training the mind, learning to go against the Kilesas, frustrating them, not giving in to them, but just with very ordinary things like sleeping, eating, the clothing we wear, or maybe camping out, so we give up our lodgings and just camp at the foot of a tree. It's a way of training the mind to practice renunciation, <clears throat> bring up patience, endurance, resilience, but gaining some inner piti and sukha the happiness that comes from these practices. Maybe it's only acquired subtly over time. But if we practice them with the right attitude, they can be very liberating. And probably everyone appreciates how sometimes once you get used to some simplicity and asceticism, it makes you feel very independent of your kilesis. You're a little bit tougher, not so bound up with habits and comforts that we're used to doesn't mean to say we always use the tudonga practices, but they're, they're there to be used and they're part of our tradition. This uh, practice of frustrating the Kalesas, going against them, not giving in to them, is very much part of the forest monk's life whether you are living in a more wealthy, well-established, older monastery, or in a small hermitage, or just on Tudong, wandering, camping, you're actually looking at ways to frustrate Kalesa, because it's a learning experience. So we have part of the practices, we have routines where we have meetings where there's maybe long sits or dhamma talks and chanting. We have different parts of the routine. We have chores, cleaning up, maintaining buildings and so on. We have the meal. There will bound to be times during your day when you are feeling tired but you are required to do something. So you have to be patient with your own distracted mind or complaining mind or there may be requisites you want but you can't ask for them because of our training we don't tend to ask for things unless someone has made an invitation. There's plenty of occasions in this life where you're just learning to be patient with different moods, different desires, wanting something you haven't got, trying to wriggle out or get away from some situation or problem that you have got that you don't really want this is very much the heart of our practice so you have to maintain the correct view right view and see that this is all part of training the mind and we use the you know the reflection on right effort in the practice you know sometimes we do have to pick up our effort when we get complacent and just set aside our desires and push ourselves a bit more get up earlier stay up later sleep a bit less eat a bit less talk a bit less <clears throat> use fewer requisites other times it's maybe appropriate to relax you know, when we're ill or when we're very busy or something well we maybe keep our keep our practice going but in a on a slightly more relaxed level. We have to learn how to find the middle way but there's no fixed middle way. It's what's appropriate according to our mind and the situation. So sometimes it means being tougher on ourselves and taking on ascetic practices or certain practices that we decide are useful for us. Other times we relax them. As the Buddha's taught, you know, it's like the three-string lute. Sometimes you have to tighten up a bit when you're too flabby, the string is too loose. Sometimes you have to relax a string that's too tight. But within this situation, living in the forest, following the Vinaya, developing mindfulness, and this is, these are the kind of reflections that come up over and over again. If we keep the, an attitude of being interested to learn from our own experience and using the techniques and the practices available, <clears throat> it can actually be quite enjoyable. In one aspect of pity and sukha that arises in the practice is, is a sense of interest. You're interested to see how your mind reacts and copes and what's going on as you train it. If you keep that interest and that willingness to learn and the curiosity or the investigation state of mind and even sometimes quite strict practices become interesting and they're not always completely successful <clears throat> or liberating. Sometimes we realise a certain practice was too tough for just not giving rise to any further mindfulness or wisdom or insight, but still you learn even from that. So this is at the heart of our practice, practice of learning, investigating the truth, using the peace of the forest, the Vinaya, the ascetic practices, and so on. <clears throat> the quality that links it all together is usually mindfulness. As the teachers have always reminded us. As you bring your mind to the present moment, then you can really learn and see the truth, because true mindfulness is unbiased is an awareness of what's happening or what's just happened. The mental state that's arising <clears throat> with mindfulness it can be seen as a mental state an a pleasant or unpleasant, skillful or unskillful, can be seen as a, a mental state that's arising and ultimately passing away again. And for sure when you practice different Donga practices or put forth effort in sitting, walking, meditation and so on, well there'll be plenty of mental states coming up for you to contemplate. There's this constant coming back to establishing mindfulness to break through the habit of the wandering mind, the daydreaming, the sleepiness, the different unmindful states we get into constantly coming back from that to the present moment using the breath and butto and the posture and the different techniques we have. In the end this is what is most valuable to us as human beings. Again coming back to the reflection on samsara, we really cannot take anything physical away from this world, people, possessions or places, even our memories tend to fade. It's the qualities that we develop through the practice that are most valuable to us as human beings, skillful qualities, just the same old things we hear every day, the generosity, the compassion, the sealess the mindfulness, the insight. This is what looks after our mind, improves our mind through the training and ultimately protects the mind from falling into suffering, right to the very end of our life. Hmm. If you do have thoughts of others, whether it's family or friends, people you know, And what is it you would you wish for another person more than anything else? You'd wish them to have these kind of qualities arise in their mind. You'd wish for them to hear the Dhamma and practice the Dhamma to have more mindfulness and insight. If you're thinking correctly, that would be how you think. It's how we can pay back debts of gratitude to our parents and different teachers, people who have helped us through our life. If we use this body and mind to practice the Dhamma, further the path of the Dhamma, to gain more insight, then you're actually using the four elements that you got from your parents through birth in the best possible way. And if you want to help them, then, you know, if you learn some dhamma and understand your own mind better through the practice, you can even share that back with them. You encourage them to meditate, listen to dhamma, read dhamma books, think more deeply about their lives. Or if they already have faith, we are just reinforcing it and encouraging them in what they're already doing they don't yet know the Dhamma, well, you maybe can introduce them to the Dhamma based on what you've understood. And this is how we can really help the people around us. It tends to be our closest friends, family and so on. Or the lay people that support us, giving them <clears throat> good example and even giving them teachings one day. And this is ultimately what's the most valuable thing for human beings, the Dhamma. The Dhamma we understand, the Dhamma we can share with others through our own practice, our own efforts. If you look at St. Lung Bo Cha's early life, he was very appreciative of other monks who gave him insights and reflections on the path of practice for enlightenment because he started in a study monastery a village monastery where he spent most of his time learning the suttas and the texts teaching them there wasn't much emphasis on Vinaya training or meditation training so when he finally got felt he'd done enough of that and and did go out wandering on Tudong. He was very appreciative of monks he met that passed on knowledge to him and experience, shared their insights with him. If you do give a gift, they always say the gift of Dhamma is the highest. Whether you just say a few words to your family or people you know, or you give Dhamma lectures and courses on meditation or whatever this is something that we can share and give back but we also appreciate what we've received from other teachers one of the most famous incidents Lumpur Cha used to recount quite often is the Cambodian monk he met in his first year of Tudong when he went down from Ubon to Lopuri looking for Lumpur Pao who was a famous meditation master in those days but had just died he didn't know he'd died he got there but he was still practicing in the monastery and being very energetic Lumpur Chao used to like to go up on the hilltop in the evening in the late night to meditate sit and walk he had met one Cambodian monk there who was very learned in the suttas, the vinaya, but also very experienced meditator. So he really appreciated some of the time he spent asking questions, finding out, sharing experiences. And that monk explained to him a lot of, of practical aspects of the vinaya, how to use the vinaya to train the mind in daily life is one of Ajahn Chah's early doubts. The actual practical application of the Vinaya, dealing with different situations, just as nowadays we have the tradition of Vinaya classes and explanations. Ajahn Chah hadn't had so much of that, so this monk was very good at explaining it and how you can train the mind using the Vinaya. Then he, one evening, at 1am I think he was walking meditation on the hilltop and there was this sound of a monk clambering over the rocks towards him he didn't know it was a monk he just thought it was a person or an animal it was so late and dark <clears throat> he wasn't sure and this Cambodian monk turned up where he was walking so he was very surprised and said why are you here what's the problem and the monk said, who was older than him, just said, well, we had that discussion on the Vinaya today, and after you left I realised I'd given you some wrong information about one of the rules. I wanted to correct that, because you can't be sure, maybe you could die tonight or I'll die tonight or somehow we're separated and I'll never be able to correct that wrong view, wrong information I passed on. That would be bad karma bad for me, bad for you. So he gave his explanation and then went back to his own place of practice. But Ajahn Chah was always very grateful for that, not just for the information itself, but just for that, seeing the dedication and commitment of that monk to the Vinaya, to the teaching and how scrupulous he was. He didn't want to let us, uh, us a whole night pass by in case somehow he didn't meet Ajahn Chah the next day. He took it very serious, seriously, that commitment to Dhamma Vinaya. Ajahn Chah would bring that up often. say, so This is how we have to cultivate ourselves, really dedicate ourselves to learning the Dhamma and then practicing the Dhamma very thoroughly. If you have that sense of devotion and commitment, it makes it, ultimately it makes it interesting, because you're really wanting to learn, wanting to know, wanting to train yourself, wanting to find out why suffering happens, how it happens, and then how to remedy it, and how to practice, and learning how to practice in different situations, You know, Ajahn Chah's later teaching was that, well, once your mind is trained in this way, with mindfulness, with the Vinaya, with wisdom, and learn to investigate the Dhamma on a regular basis, till it's kind of normal and natural for the mind to be like that, then everything starts to teach you. There's a famous saying of Lumpur Man, every tuft of grass is teaching you something. Because every time your your senses are active, you hear, you see, you taste, touch, smell, or just thinking, or having different mental states arise, if you're trained in mindfulness and investigating the three characteristics of existence, then everything becomes a teaching. Just a thought or a feeling passing by is teaching you impermanence, contemplating the four elements in your own body or buildings or the world around, you're seeing the Dhamma. The slightest little thing can become a teaching when the mind is trained and is looking, investigating the Dhamma. So although living in the forest you could say, well we have very little, we're poor, it's not much different really from the animals that we live with in the forest. <clears throat> On another sense we're very rich because we have the Dhamma Vinaya as our backing, as our foundation. We have all the teachers that come and visit us and we visit other teachers. We have the teachings and tradition of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Man. We have the support of the lay community. So we're actually very rich in terms of Dhamma even though in the way of the world we're poor. That doesn't matter because the Dhamma has much more value than material wealth or money or whatever. It's far better to have a peaceful mind, to have mindfulness, to have wisdom and understanding than just to have a lot of money. And that could be very deluding. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. We can do some chanting.